Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decomp smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Hello everyone! Welcome to another episode! So this week, our episode is fueled by Pangolin Cafe. And honestly, you guys, I think this might be like my new little secret treasure. Like I, and now it's not a secret because I'm telling all of you guys about it. But I was so thoroughly impressed with this coffee slash tea shop. Yeah, I am just like so stoked. So Darby actually missed our coffee date. I did, unfortunately. I'm really bummed about it because I found them online. I couldn't remember their name for a while. And I was like, it's that little creature that's always on the the black market. (laughs) Um, But it's Pangolin, yes. Mm -hmm. And they just sounded like they had such good stuff. And so I'm really bummed I missed it. And I am going this weekend. You have to. And I got the red lavender latte. It's ribose tea shot, excuse me, with lavender infused steamed milk dusted with crushed lavender bud topping. Like what? It was so fancy. It was, <laughs> I was like, it sounds so fancy. Yeah, it was so delicious. Um, and then they also, with every one of your um, drinks, you get a little piece of Turkish delight. And I have never had it before. It's almost like um, kind of a gummy dessert. It's a little bit less gummy than a gummy bear. And it was, I got the rose water one. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. It was so good. And at the same time, Emmy's flower truck, it's a vintage flower truck that's been like refurbished. They were out front that weekend and they had like a little discount if you got flowers and a drink. And mm, so really upsetting. Yeah, it was so fun. And you guys on our Instagram this week for the sheriff's office, there will be a little link to Emmy's flower truck as well and to Pangolin. So be sure you guys stop in, get some drinks and get some flowers. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing the topic of sexual assault and specifically how recent laws have greatly impacted um, not only the state of Nevada, but the nation and also forensics as a whole. And you guys, every 73 seconds, someone in the United States experiences sexual assault and unfortunately, every nine minutes, the victim is a child. And sadly, only five out of every 1,000 perpetrators will end up serving prison time. The crime lab has always played a big role in the coordination efforts on the topic of sexual assault. For example, we provide the sexual assault evidence collection kits for Northern Nevada, as well as the suspect evidence collection kits. Um, Bodine has also served as the crime lab liaison for nine years uh, on the Northern Nevada sexual assault response team, where we, the biology section specifically, has worked closely with this team to weigh in on DNA questions, collections, and kit coordination efforts. Right now we're meeting about quarterly, um, and we address all types of issues on the topic of sexual assault, everything from the collection all the way through to prosecution, and um, we just weigh in on all those DNA questions. And this was actually given to me when I first started working here, and now it's become one of my probably favorite side things that I do uh, here at the sheriff's office is working with this team and being involved in sexual assault cases. Yeah, and we both uh, recently helped revamp the Northern Nevada SART kits. If you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the SART kit is 
purchased through a uh, provider and you can actually customize them. And so we work very closely with the SART nurses here um, in Northern Nevada and anytime they've gone to a training or you know, found out that there should be, you know, different type of collection or maybe additional swabs or any additional supplies or anything that they need changed in those kits. Also things like on the medical questionnaire. Um, and so anything that needs to be changed, they relay that to us. And then you and I work together mm -hmm. most recently, updating those for them and making sure that the supplies in there are, are sufficient for them and uh, getting that medical questionnaire like up to date on, on topics that they needed up to dating. We've also pretty consistently um, try to provide feedback for them too. Mm -hmm. You know, that like where they swabbed or that, you know, these were good locations for obtaining profiles or um, we haven't really been getting anything from these locations and stuff like that. So Yeah, and they um, said that that really helps them with their collection and it kind of lets them know that, okay, we're doing a good job and we're getting the forensic evidence that's left behind. So getting to be a part of the SART team has been really beneficial to me in many ways. I think I got to work with other agencies and then I also got to learn you know what goes into sexual assault cases and what a victim undergoes like for a SART exam um, and just all of the moving pieces to sex assault cases and so I hope in this episode today you guys also get a little bit of information about how that's handled what resources are really available to victims here in northern Nevada and just you know, I think in the media right now, you see a lot of negativity, especially especially with these unsubmitted sexual assault kits. And I hope today's episode really will shed some light for you guys listening about how we got there um, and how we're doing in the state of Nevada as a whole, especially here in northern Nevada. And so some of this information um, really got started in the media in around 2009. And in 2009, it was started to come out that these larger cities, specifically Detroit, had a really massive backlog of untested sexual assault kits. And when they dove into that, they found out a few things. And part of the reason for this is that, you know, a law enforcement agency took the initial call for a sex assault and a victim underwent an exam. And then for whatever reason, that kit was never submitted to a crime lab for testing. So those are what we call unsubmitted kits. And that happened across the United States, not just in Detroit, Michigan. And then the other side of this is you know, maybe the law enforcement agency actually did submit it to a crime laboratory for testing, but crime laboratories were experiencing really big backlogs at the time. And so because of these massive backlogs, SART kits sat for years and potentially never even got tested. And so due to this media pr uh, pressure, a lot of agencies from across the nation started to evaluate the status of their sexual assault cases and they even started pulling evidence from like the last 20 plus years to really look into this uh, this problem across the nation. To hopefully shed some light on the topic of sexual assault examinations and sexual assault backlogs, we will be hearing from two people today. And first up, we have Deborah Robeson from the Child Advocacy Center. Hi, Debbie. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. All right. And to start us off, where are you from? So I've actually lived in Nevada for about 38 years, um, but I grew up in Southern California, born in the LA area, and then grew up pretty close to the Mexican border down in Southern California, and then migrated up here. And uh, what is your educational background? Well, I went right out of high school into, into nursing school, so I graduated really young from a two-year nursing program. Um, I've been a nurse for 40 years. <laughs> I went back to school five years ago and got my bachelor's degree in nursing and uh, has spent the majority of my nursing career in the emergency department where sexual assaults were done. 
Um, but when forensic nursing became its own discipline, then I uh, took the training um, 22 years ago and been doing um, forensic nursing or sexual assault nursing since then. Can you explain to us exactly what the CAC is? So the Washoe County Child Advocacy Center, or the CAC as we call it, is a multidisciplinary team approach to child sexual abuse. Um, we do see, we are a dual program, we do see adults here, but the main focus of the CAC is child uh, sexual abuse. And the CAC brings together a team of law enforcement, advocacy, forensic interviewers, deputy district attorneys, social workers, and medical providers to pro provide uh, and investigate for and support children who disclose abuse. Um, it's a child-friendly atmosphere to promote health and healing once a child discloses abuse. Partner agencies are the Washoe County District Attorney's Office, Washoe County Human Services Agency, Washoe County Sheriff's Office, Reno Police Department, Sparks Police Department, and Juvenile Services. There are also therapists that are contracted with the CAC so that every child may be offered therapy if they, if they want. And the goal of the combined agencies is to investigate the case with the least amount of trauma possible to the child. Minimal interviews, like only one, um, so that one interview with all agencies are so that people get all the information they need. The district attorney's office needs to prosecute uh, people who hurt children, if that's possible. Washington County Human Services Agency makes sure the child is protected in their homes. Not every child outcry would require uh, HSA involvement. Um, if the perpetrator's not in the home or the parents or the guardians are properly protective, then they ne wouldn't necessarily need to be here. Um, Washoe County, Reno Police, Sparks Police are the partner law enforcement agencies, uh, depending on where the crime occurred. And while these are partner agencies, the CAC invites any law enforcement agency investigating a crime against a child to use the services at the CAC. Agencies that have used our services are the Department of Homeland Security, rural law enforcement like Lyon County, Churchill County, Carson County, the FBI and Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, the adult program provides sexual assault exams for all of Northern Nevada and eight border California counties from Alpine County to Lassen County. And how does the CAC provide services to an adult versus a child? Well, so the adult program um, is a more immediate program. The adults are typically evidence collection, so we'll do a medical mm -hmm. examination and collect evidence on an adult sexual assault victim up to about seven days after an assault. Kids, uh, kids don't tend to disclose as um, quickly as adults do. And so most of their examinations are just medical examinations, just to look at their body to reassure them that they're okay. Plus, anatomically, kids can't tolerate an internal exam like we as adults recognize uh, adults have. And so we don't do anything inside a child's body except, you know, maybe look inside their mouth. But they don't get those like speculum exams like adults do, that kind of thing. And so for them, it's just looking at their bodies. If, it's, uh, a, if the uh, contact has occurred maybe within about 72 hours and they haven't had a bath or something like that, we might do some evidence collection. But the kids are more a physical exam where the adults are more um, intrusive and more about uh, where we can collect DNA from inside their body. And how many sexual assaults do you typically do in a year for both adults and children? Well, not counting last year because COVID really changed our numbers, but uh, we do probably between 250 and maybe 300 exams on adults 
and then we do approximately 30 to 80 exams on kids a year. Would you say COVID decreased those numbers significantly? Oh, it did hugely, yes. How are you contacted for an exam? Well, we're contacted in several ways. Uh, If an adult makes a complaint of sexual assault, the Sexual Assault Support Services is notified and a request is made for an exam. So that can come from they make a police report and the police uh, call them. They go to the hospital and the hospital might call them or they call the crisis lines and then the crisis lines refer them over to the Sexual Assault Support Services and then exams are set up that way. Um, the sexual assault support services advocates call out the on-call advocate and the nurse. We meet the patient at the CAC and then the exam is done. If a child needs an exam, uh, the call may come from the district attorney, the deputy district attorney on call, the police or sexual assault support services. Um, the exam may happen before a forensic interview or after, or it may be scheduled at a later time. Um, If evidence collection needs to be done, all exams should be done as soon as possible, whether it's an adult or a child. And you just mentioned uh, victim advocates. Can you explain to our listeners what a victim advocate is and how they assist the victim through this process? Yes, so advocates may come from the community. Uh, The community advocates are mostly volunteer or for law enforcement or from the DA's office. Each has their different roles in the process, but the basic tenet is the same. That's victim survivor support and a contact person throughout the process from start to finish. Community advocates are available for support during the exam, um, initiation of the victim of crime application, information for support and resources. They assess for a safe place when the patient leaves the exam room. They get a hotel room if the patient needs it. Um, Law enforcement advocates are more able to support the, the victim survivor through the investigative process making sure they have resources and and, uh, those resources are appropriate for their circumstances. They also assess for safety and housing, and then the DA office advocates help the victim through the court process, also assessing that resources are accessed and appropriate. So it seems like victim advocates play quite a large role in assisting the victim through this. Oh, huge. I could not do my job without those victim advocates. And then after the examination, there's always a contact person, so the patient is never just dropped from from the process. They always have somebody they can call. And now, uh, you don't have to go into a whole lot of detail, but can you explain a little bit about the exam process itself? The exam process is, is pretty similar to most medical examinations. Uh, the, we get a medical history, we get a history of the assault, uh, we talk about consent, photography, release of information, It's important that all patients understand they have the right to decline any portion of the examination, regardless of their age and circumstance. Even small children can choose not to comply with the examination. Physical evaluation and evidence collection, which is just using Q-tips to touch them in areas that they were touched during the assault. I like to compare it to an exam a person gets when they have a sore throat. We look Mm -hmm. at their throat, we swab it for a strep test and a culture, Um, It's just that for this exam, we're swabbing for DNA instead of infection. Mm -hmm. And what resources are available to victims here in Northern Nevada after um, an assault takes place? So the advocates are the ones who provide all that resource information. Uh, The patient signs an application for funding that's provided for counseling or medical care. Each county in Nevada is must provide up to $1,000 for, for that counseling or medical care if they need it. 
After that funding is used, uh, then the Victims of Crime funding may be accessed. The application for that is also initiated during the examination uh, if the patient wishes. They're also given counseling resources, sexual assault victim bill of rights, journaling information, and possibly a journal. Other resources would be given based on their needs, safe housing, transportation, food vouchers. Other agencies that need to be involved with them, aftercare might be Safe Embrace, Domestic Violence Resource Center, Homeless Shelter and Resources, Temporary Restraining Order Information, um, and Vine, Victim Information and Notification Every Day. Resources would uh, vary depending on patient need, but also resources are pretty limited. So we can say that, you know, we're going to assess for safe housing and stuff, but that doesn't mean that beyond about the first 24 to 48 hours that we actually are going to have safe housing for them. And one thing that I found um, interesting when I first took a tour, it used to be the Jim Pagel Center, that's when I started, it's where these assault um, exams were taken, was you do have some immediate kind of goods for the victim as well. Oftentimes their clothing is taken from them as part of the exam. And so you have some clothing and some basic um, kind of needs for them in the ways of like toothbrushes and shampoo as well, correct? That's correct. So our Women's Assistance League here in Washoe County, um, amazing group of women, put together packets with brand new sweats, uh, sweatpants, sweatshirt, t-shirt, and then just that little bag of Kleenex, sunglasses, shampoo, conditioner, a comb, just what you might need if if you just had nothing at that mm -hmm. moment. And and I'll tell you, there after some distressing situations, um, bad things happen, whatever, there's nothing better than a nice warm pair of sweats mm -hmm. to just curl up in. So I feel that this is a wonderful service that the, the Women's Assistance League provides for our patients. And how does one become a CERT nurse? Well, first of all, you have to be a nurse. Um, <laughs> start out there. And then there are several online or in-class training uh, availabilities throughout the United States. Uh, the International Association of Forensic Nurses has guidelines. Um, there are national, national guidelines, recommendations for what should be included in those trainings, but it's about 40 hours. And uh, do that, and then a person should follow an experience sane for however long it takes. Everybody learns in different, different uh, time frames. But follow an experience sane until they're comfortable with doing an exam. And then they can do exams. Um, there is a national certification test. However, it's not even recommended that that be taken until over 300 hours of examinations have been done. So that can take a couple of years. Um, the process is not difficult, and uh, it, it can be done. And what are some common misconceptions that you have found in the general public about the exam process or sexual assault? In our area, a common misconception is that exams are done at all the area hospitals. So approximately 28% of our patients actually go to the emergency department before they're directed to the CAC. The unfortunate part of that is the delay in getting the exam and the inconsistent care they can get. Um, some patients may get an exam with medication or testing and then are sent to the CAC. Uh, and the problem with that is that then they're, they're charged for, the, for their mm -hmm. uh, hospital visit. At the CAC, everything we do, which is the examination, medication, HIV testing, pregnancy testing, all of those things are completely free to the patient. 
And so if we can get them to, or the hospitals, to just educate and not treat, unless it's necessary. Of course, we always want medical cares to be taken care of before they are sent this way. Then uh, there's no charge to the patient. Um, the other issue with the emergency departments is that they may do toxicology if the patient thinks that they were drugged, and their toxicology screens are very limited, where if we can do a legal toxicology, they test for over 400 different metabolites. But time is of essence, and so uh, the, the quicker we can get that blood and urine from a patient after an assault, the, the more chance we would have of getting something because substances clear the system very quickly. A common misconception with child exams is that we're putting the child through something um, that may be an invasive or painful. Uh, child exams are simply a head-to-toe examination, uh, which they should have, be, you know, should have done at a doctor's office. They should be used to that. And in fact, that's why kids are usually pretty good about these exams. Um, and we just do a little bit closer look at their genitalia. But again, like I mentioned earlier, we don't put anything inside their bodies. So there's nothing painful or nothing uh, that we put that child through. And what advice do you have for someone who has just survived a sexual assault? Go to a safe place or get to a safe place. Call the police. Uh, if they need time to decide what to do, Try not to shower or put a tampon in the vagina. Um, certainly we understand if they just need to take care of themselves, that's okay. Uh, women don't douche anymore, which is really nice. And because we're collecting those specimens from inside the vagina, a, uh, a shower might not necessarily destroy all evidence for us. So we certainly understand if they feel like they have to do that. If they have to take their clothes off, put them in paper bags, not plastic bags. Call, call Crisis Support Services of Northern Nevada for support, and if they have questions and need direction, um, they'll get in contact with someone from Sexual Assault Support Services that way. I know people are told not to eat or drink anything, but natural salivation washes out the mouth, so unless an oral assault happened in the past couple of hours, not eating or drinking is not necessarily going to change our evidence collection. So, What would you say is the hardest part of your job? I think the hardest part is the fact that every one of these people has had something bad happen to them. Um, they may not have physical injury, but they have invisible injury. I don't know if I'm helping them to heal. I hope that I am. Um, statistically, over a third of these patients consider suicide and 13% attempt. These statistics come from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Um, obviously, sexual assault has a huge emotional impact. I wish I knew more um, how to help in that matter, but certainly I don't want to make things worse for them. So trying to be as trauma-informed, treat them, you know, try to make this examination yeah. not traumatic is, is my ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. And what do you find most rewarding about your job? Well, the rewarding part is when what I do works. So if we get a positive DNA profile on a child, maybe um, providing proof in a tangible way that what happened to, you know, what, what happened to the patient is, provides truth, you know, mm -hmm. that there's that, um, I can't see DNA, I have to rely on patient history and do my examination without a visible roadmap. DNA isn't colored, it doesn't shout out, pick me, pick me. So when a lab result comes back, that I collected the correct information from that patient. It tells me I'm in the right place for that person. And um, also rewarding is just the reassurance that I can offer them that they're okay. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for talking to us about the, you know, more technical side of your job and what you do. And part of this podcast, one of our goals was to also introduce the community to who we are outside of our jobs a little bit to let them know that we're just people. And so this next part is just to ask you who you are outside of work. Like, do you have any hobbies? What what do you like to do? <laughs> well, outside of this, I'm a wife. Uh, I'm a mom and a grandma. I've been married for 36 years. I have four kids and four grandkids and one more on the way. I delivered my last grandchild on his mother's living room floor. That was amazing. Wow. I love to cook, and the Food Network, holy cow, has really increased my creativity. I mean, who knew? I raise chickens. I sell eggs and chickens for meat. Um, I'm really getting into turning the vegetables from my husband's garden into chicken stock and vegetable stock and trying to find where I can get some beef bones for beef stock. And my pantry is well stocked with canned food. I'm constantly working in my kitchen which is a great time for listening to webinars. I mean, I'm really all in with being a forensic nurse and I listen to webinars as often as I can. I've really enjoyed the COVID restrictions as far as education is concerned. So many classes are done online now, so no need to travel for conferences and paying for hotels and stuff. I'm on the membership committee for the Academy of Forensic Nursing, so I'm always looking for information from them and I provide training to pretty much any agency that asks so I'm constantly updating PowerPoints and educational information and I love being an older person and not having kids in the house so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> awesome. So our last segment of each interview is called the lightning round. It's where we throw a couple of questions at you kind of fast and see, see what we get off the cuff here. And the first question I have for you is, um, where do you see the future of forensic nursing going? Well, I don't see it going backwards. Uh, Doctors, ERs, hospitals uh, don't see a benefit to taking care of these folks. They feel like there's no money, that kind of thing. And we don't want to see patients going back into the ER system where they might not, you know, where they're just kind of corralled through as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. I feel like nurses doing these exams is perfect and amazing, and they provide that care that's needed. I wish we could get more nurses. We're desperate for nurses. We have very few nurses in this area doing this job. And uh, I'd like to see us get more nurses. And then I'd like to see this really expanded out into the rural communities. We, uh, the Attorney General's Office in Nevada has been trying and has a goal to get a, a SANE in every, every county, but we're not there yet. But boy, I'd sure like to see that, that happen. You know, if we could help you in any way, maybe we could put your guys' contact um, along in our show notes. And if you guys are interested or listeners at home about becoming a SANE, maybe we can get them in touch with you. Absolutely. Awesome. And our next question is, do you take your work home with you? Not usually. Again, with an ER background, you certainly see a lot of tragic or things that might touch your heart or something like that. But it's healthy to leave, to compartmentalize and to leave those in those boxes and, be, and leave home in that box and vice versa. I mean, certainly conflict happens at home. You don't want to take that to work with you. And so it's kind of important that we come compartmentalize and leave those in those different areas. But be healthy about it. We need to be able to be sure that we're processing those appropriately and, and uh and, and again, leaving those in those boxes, but still working through them to make sure we're okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, what has changed? What has this job changed for you outside of work, if anything? Well, because it's a call process or a call program, uh, 
we definitely have to make sure we always have an escape route. <laughs> um, I always, I don't mind, say, going to the movies or something like that, but I know if I'm on call, I might be called out, and so therefore I just have to make sure I have that, that, uh, that way um, out. And then sometimes I get looks from people in the street, and I think, oh, I probably saw that person once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't, of course, approach people or say anything to anybody if we know we've encountered them as a patient. But um, I love being on call. I like the randomness of it. So other than just kind of being aware that I need to be able to get to work quickly if I get called, um, it hasn't changed much. And possibly I'm a kinder person because of what I do. And our last and final question is, what makes you smile every day when you come to work? The people at the CAC, they are so nice here. And because we're all in the same place and we all have the same goals, it's nice working with a group when we're all heading in the same direction. We all have the same goals. We all want to take care of kids. We all want to make sure adults are okay. And uh, it just it just makes it nice. There's not a lot of, uh, there's no need to be conflict about our jobs because we all have the same purpose. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and being willing to share this information with the general public. Thank you. And now we'll be talking to supervising criminalist, Dr. Lisa Smith-Rome. All right. Well, welcome, Lisa. Thanks for being on our podcast today. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Lisa is my supervisor. So yeah. we both get to interview our supervisors on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And Lisa, where are you from? If your accent didn't give it away, let's tell our <laughs> listeners where you're from. So I am from a small town in the middle of Ireland called Tullamore in the county Offaly. And what is your educational background? I have a Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Science from the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland. And I have a PhD in Cellular and Molecular Physiology and Pharmacology from the UNR here in Reno. All right. And what is your job here at the Sheriff's Office and what does it entail? I am one of three supervising criminalists um, that uh, oversee the biology unit here at the Sheriff's Office. Sounds like not by the degrees that you got, but did you always want to be in forensics? No. So when I was little, forensic, forensics really wasn't something that was on TV. I didn't even know such a job existed or I might have actually wanted to do it. Um, but I did know for sure I wanted to do something in science. So I to- toyed with the idea of being a vet at one point and then a nurse. And then when I spent some time volunteering in a hospital lab, that was the first time I realized I really enjoyed a lab environment. And that is why I decided to get a degree in biomedical science. And then once I, as part of that degree, I got to do research here at UNR and I loved it so much. So I thought maybe I'd like to become a professor. So I went to graduate school and then towards the end of graduate school, I was like, "Eh, I'm ready for something a little different. So I um, applied for a job that was opened at the Sheriff's Office in the Forensic Science Division and I got it and here I am 15 years later. Wow, 15 years. Yeah, I know. Congrats. Um, So obviously our episode today is talking about um, AB 97 and sexual assault here in Northern Nevada and you were quite involved with uh, AB 97, weren't you? I was. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your involvement? Yeah, I think it really all started back probably in 2015 
when a task force was developed um, in Nevada to assess uh, the concerns that sexual assault kits had been collected as part of a criminal investigation but never actually submitted to the forensic lab for testing. Who else was part of this committee? Yeah, there there was a great variety of um, people as part of the task force. There was uh, members of both forensic labs in Nevada, also members of the Attorney General's office, the victim advocate um, groups. Uh, We also had members from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and we had SART nurses and um, legislators. So there there was a variety of people, and law enforcement, of course, were represented as well. And when you guys really started looking into this project, did you find that there were unsubmitted sexual assault kits throughout the state? Yeah, it became apparent fairly quickly that there were um, unsubmitted sexual assault kits. And uh, in fact, there were about just over a thousand were identified over the course of about a year, a year's research. And um, all the different law enforcement agencies started to go and examine their, uh, in their evidence sections uh, whether they had sexual assault kits that needed to be tested. And so, yeah, um, just over 1,000. 1,000 a, a sounds like a really big number. Uh, were you guys going to test all of them? Yes, the goal was to test every single one of the unsubmitted sexual assault kits. So we were a little um, worried, to say the least, <laughs> when, when we found out uh, that, that number. And how did you guys go about um, getting them done? So it's great when you're part of a task force where everyone has that common goal. And one of the the tasks of the task force was to identify funds so that we could test these sexual assault kits. And sure enough, uh, really with a great thanks to the Attorney General's office, we were able to um, get some funding for the testing of the sexual assault kits. And now that you had the money, what was the next step? Yeah, so the very next uh, step was then to coordinate the actual testing. So we were not go- we were not going to be able to test them in house um, without adversely affecting our current backlog. So we coordinated the te- the use of a private lab to test these kits. It seems like it was a lot of work to coordinate the testing of over a thousand kits. Was it a lot of work? It was a huge task and involved a lot of great people from our lab and law enforcement agencies. And we had to complete a significant amount of paperwork. We had to go out to bid in order to obtain the services of a private lab for the best pricing. We had to review all the procedures of the private lab and also complete an on-site visit to ensure that they were able to provide the services that we needed at the standard that we expected. We have an insane Excel spreadsheet mm-hmm. to track to all of these kits. So it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty crazy. Um, and you know, I think when we hear about this kind of in the news and things, we think, oh, okay, they sent them out to a private lab, the project got done. But really, it didn't stop there for you guys, correct? Like once these kits were sent out to the lab, um, you had more work on your hands. Yes, so the work definitely didn't stop at the private lab. So every single um, case that was sent to a private lab was reviewed in-house by our criminalists here in the biology unit. So we had essentially over a thousand sexual assault kits that needed to be reviewed in addition to our current backlog. Where does AB 97 fall into this project? Yeah, so once I guess once we had um, realized that we were, a- were going to be able to test all these unsubmitted sexual assault kits, 
we really wanted to have a mechanism in place so that it would never happen again. A backlog of unsubmitted sexual assault kits would never happen again. So our the task force was um, part of the creation of a bill draft in the 2017 legislative session. This bill became known as Assembly Bill 97 and required the DNA testing of all sexual assault kits submitted to the lab within 30 days and tested within 120 days of receipt. Um, so just listening to that, those numbers sound a little bit daunting to me as an analyst. Uh, so when you first heard this as um, you know a supervising criminalist, did you have immediate concerns about the bill and how it would kind of affect our section? For sure. While we really believed that the bill, it was very important to to get have law uh, requiring the testing of sexual assault kit, it was terrifying because I already knew that we were drowning with our current backlog and we knew we would start getting a lot more sexual assault kits every month to test. And if we didn't have the manpower to do so, to test these, then uh, it was it was very worrisome. Mm-hmm. Could you do anything about this? Yeah, the great thing is the Sheriff's Office has some amazing legislative liaisons that we work with, and they ensured that we had an opportunity to speak at some hearings when the bill was in the committee stage. And that's the stage during the legislative process where they, um, the houses gather information to determine whether they're going to kill the bill or move it forward mm-hmm. for, for approval. So we were able to address what the lab needed in order to successfully implement the bill. And we provided a fiscal note to address the costs associated with the lab's needs. This included the need for funding associated with hiring six additional DNA criminals, a remodel to accommodate these criminals, because quite frankly, we didn't have anywhere to put them. Yeah, there was no seats for them. (laughs) There was no seats, we didn't have a table for them. And money to pay for the outsourcing of sexual assault kits to help eliminate our current backlog, and also kits that would continue to come into the lab while we were hiring and training these new individuals. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the process that doesn't get highlighted very often, is to think that we needed to get the ones that weren't submitted, tested, keep up with what was coming in, but then we also had things kind of hanging out. So you had to juggle a lot, especially as management, to make sure all those needs got met. Yeah, it, it, it was piles. There was just different piles. Right? So <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> they all had their place. Yeah. Um, and this sounds very expensive. So did you guys get uh, help financially to implement um, these new laws that AB 97 you know, kind of put on the crime labs? Yes, we were very lucky. Um, the, our legislators listened to what we had to say, and we, we did get some limited funding, but it was salaries to pay for six new criminalists for 12 months. We got money to pay for the basic remodel to accommodate the new individuals, and we did get some money to outsource the sexual assault kits from our current backlog and ones that would be coming in while these were being while the new criminalists were being trained. So altogether, how much money did you get? Yeah, so we got about two and a half million for the entire project. Oh, wow. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a lot of money to manage. Mm-hmm. And something that you haven't touched on, but we obviously like lived through it, so I'm going to ask you about it. Um, you know, you keep talking about this remodel, but in order to remodel, your lab like had to our lab had to like shut down, and you had half your crew like off site, right? Oh yeah, it 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 was really um, a little crazy, but we were super excited and grateful for the regional training center. Mm -hmm. They put us up and I I think they were really 
delighted to have some of these DNA criminals hanging <laughs> out um, up there. And um, yeah, we basically had to shut down our lab for several months in order to create more room. Um, and and it, it required a lot of coordination up front so that we had all the testing that needed to be done that had court dates. Right. And so they were ready for the, while we're shut down. So it, it definitely um, required a lot of efforts on by many different people. Mm -hmm. And then part of the bill is uh, allowing victims to know what's happening with their kit. And so that was kind of an endeavor that was also placed on the lab and law enforcement and kind of the start nurses is how are we going to coordinate this? And so can you tell our listeners how you guys are meeting that with um, what's called track it? Yeah, so one of the, the tasks also that the task force was very instrumental in was create having or purchasing some software that could be utilized um, to track sexual assault kits throughout Nevada. So the Attorney General's office and the DPS actually got tasked with this fun little job. And the Attorney General's office acquired a grant to pay for it, which was great because it was extremely expensive software. But um, in 2019, June of 2019, uh, we started using this software called TrackIt. And basically, it tracks the sexual assault kit from the time it's collected all the way through the process. And then victims can go in and see where their kit is in the process, whether it has been tested, whether it's at the law enforcement agency, whether it's at the lab. So it's pretty, um, pretty cool. And the lab, we were lucky enough to be part of the selection process for this software. So we got to see some presentations on a variety of different uh, companies that potentially could offer the service. And then we um, picked the one that provided everything that we needed. Mm -hmm. And kind of a funny story when this went live, Darby and I actually helped um, update the kits mm -hmm. yep. during that time. Uh, we met with uh, <coughs> the start nurses and asked them if they needed any updates. And then in order to do this, we had to purchase new kits, essentially, and we had to get a number associated with them. Well, our kits hadn't come in by the time that we had a go live date. And I just remember going to the supervisors and saying, uh, we don't have the kits, we're live, what are we gonna do? We need a number to track them. <laughs> yeah, so we had to come up with emergency kits, right? You yep. purchased emergency kits. Yes, absolutely. And you, I remember you came up with the- The number, the yeah, numbering. the numbers were an yeah. EK and it stood for literally emergency kit. Somebody <laughs> asked me, what is this number? And I said, uh, emergency kit number one. <laughs> I never knew that when I was writing them out, because you know, you take notes in primary, yeah. and you're like, have to note the number that's on the cert kits. And I had no idea. It was a number that I just stood yeah. for. came up with it. And I said, how's this sound? They said, good. And we made barcodes out of CODIS, actually. Our CODIS printer printed the barcodes uh, so that we had them. And we called, um, Shannon Helget, and she loaded those numbers into Track It, and that's how those first few are actually tracked. The emergency kits, mm -hmm. huh? Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Um, and from beginning to end, so, you know, coming up with how many untested kits there were in the state of Nevada to being completely tested and results done, how long did this process take? It's taken about five years, actually, to, to get all the unsubmitted sexual assault kits tested, and they're all tested. They're done. And uh, and our we, we really um, we're at the stage now where all new kits coming into the lab we expect to complete the testing within 120 days. So that that is pretty amazing because our turnaround time um, just a few years ago was over a year. Mm -hmm. So 
And what do you, what would you say was your biggest challenge in your involvement with this whole process? I think uh, just the pressure. There was so much pressure. <laughs> I felt like there was a lot of pressure on our criminalists, um, you know, we, we to crank out work and to get it done with a high quality. There was, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves because we wanted to provide our community with uh, exceptional turnaround times and exceptional quality work. We were getting pressure from the media. We were getting pressure from and the legislators were getting pressure from the attorney general's office. I, f I just felt like there was just a, so much pressure all the time to get get these kits tested and done. And is there anything that learned from this whole process? I think for me, um, what I learned, the, the number one thing that stands out is probably when organizations come together with a common goal, really great things, great things can happen. And I also, the other thing I really learned from is when you tackle an issue, if you tackle it from multiple angles, it's really beneficial. So for, for this particular project, we obviously utilized a private lab quite extensively in order to be successful. But while that was going on, we also hired new people. We, we changed our training program to be a task-based training program that allowed people to participate in casework much sooner. We also purchased new instruments that were very efficient and um, a lot more efficient than we currently had thanks to grant funding we implemented a lean and six sigma process to eliminate any inefficiencies uh, th there's just so many different things that we we did in order to be successful and i feel like not just not one thing alone would have made us success it was all of those things together that really um helped us get to where we're at well, that's a really big time of growth for the biology unit overall. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of change yeah. happening, but yeah. like good. It growth, was good change. Good I mean, there was definitely growing pains and mm -hmm. there was some frustrations along the way and stresses. But, you know, you can see that people are a lot less stressed out now. now. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And so that's very um, rewarding. May not have felt like that for those five years, but, exactly. you know. Yeah. No. <laughs> Where we are now, no. I think those exactly. turnaround times yeah. and, you know, making it not only our goal for sexual assault kits, but to try and get almost all our casework done in that same time manner. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's amazing, but I'm sure we've all acquired a few white hairs during yeah. the process. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lisa, so part of us interviewing people from our lab is not only to educate the community on what we do at the lab, but also tell them a little bit about the people that we are outside of our jobs. Um, so is there anything that you are comfortable sharing or you want to tell our listeners about you as to who Lisa is outside of biology? Sure. Um, I have two children, a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old and a husband and two dogs. So they keep me super busy uh, all the time. But we really enjoy camping and hiking and just taking in this beautiful nature that we're, we're very lucky to have that surround us every day. Um, I like movies and reading and hanging out with friends and I'm pretty laid back and easygoing. So I'm usually up for pretty much anything. <laughs> You really are. Every time I bring in one of my like hippie ideas with my essential oils. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I that. love all this. <laughs> Meditating. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm down for whatever. We also, uh, when Bodine and I got to travel to Ireland, we actually stayed yes. in Lisa's dad's house. Yes. <laughs> yes. And met your family. Yeah, and yes. out your family. <laughs> they treated us to a true Irish brunch. It was wonderful. I know. We're still friends. Yes. Right? <laughs> it was so much fun. 
was a really cool experience for us. It was. And now you have reached what we like to call the lightning round. So these are questions that we ask everyone that comes on the podcast, except for one question's different. So to start us off is, do you miss being a benchwork analyst or do you enjoy what you do now more? That is a tricky question. I, I do miss definitely going into the lab and processing some cases. I, I found it very like exciting and rewarding, but I actually love supervising people. So it is very rewarding to see um, my coworkers excel and do really, really great. So I actually, I felt really satisfied when I was a bench work analyst, but I also feel really satisfied in the role that I'm playing now. So. I, I, I like both. I wish I could do both. <laughs> yeah. It's not enough time in the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lisa, do you take your work home with you at all? An odd time, but I have definitely learned over the years to uh, really try and live a more balanced life. So I try not to. And so I try not to check my work email when I'm at, uh, when I'm at home. I, I do tend to leave it here if possible. What has this job, if anything, changed for you outside of work? I am probably a little bit more um, cautious with people, mm-hmm. uh, especially I have children. So, you know, um, they don't get to stay over in people's houses when I don't know them really well, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes you sometimes a little bit of a worry Nelly, uh, you know. Yeah. So I, I'd say that's probably something that has uh, has made me a bit more cautious. Mm-hmm. And our last and final question, it's our favorite question as well. Um, what makes you smile every day at work? Uh, the people that I work with. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of our more popular answers. I was like, that's yes. been a common thread. It yeah. has been, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> sure. really when we read some of the synopsis, we're not going to be smiling. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it has to be the people. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on the podcast and uh, spending some time with us. Thank you very much. This concludes another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist. As always, thank you guys for listening. And if you were listening and felt like becoming a sane is something that you are interested in, as promised, we do have Deb's contact information listed in our show notes. So please reach out to her if becoming a sane is right for you and know that we are quite desperate for them in Northern Nevada. As always, thank you so much for your continued support. Like, listen, and follow. Bye, guys. Washu S1. S1, go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Copy with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washoesheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks, Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night. S1, copy. Have a good night.